that's why you want to be good. That's why you want to be fair to yourself because any injustice is done only to yourself. As the Quran says, you're only doing injustice to yourself. You're bringing this on to yourself. Every negative thing that ever happened to you is brought on to you by yourself. So, in my opinion, Islam is talking to you from a position of pure reason. If you were purely logical, you would ask the same question René Descartes asked. You would ask the same question Ghazali asked. How do you know you're not dreaming? You know, one, one uh, uh, Chinese sage once said, I read this a long time ago. I haven't studied Eastern philosophy, but he says, I don't know if I'm a man dreaming I'm a butterfly or a butterfly dreaming I'm a man. If you're a purely logic, a, a logical person, all you know is you're going from one world to the next. And this one seems, this one that you wake up in seems to have continuity. However, when you're in a dream, it also has continuity. You feel like, let's say, I don't know, let's say you dream you're a professor. Well, you didn't just appear that day. You feel like you were always a professor in that dream, so to speak. Hence, when we speak in small circles, when, when logicians are in small circles and they're talking, they're like, look, how can we tell? How can we decipher from one experience and the other? The truth is we cannot. We only do it on sheer blind faith. This is a very important point. We only do it on sheer blind animalistic faith. That's crazy because y'all know how like impactful it was. Yeah. Listen, yeah. if you're watching this, it was so it was such a strong dream that I woke up and then I was talking to my dad and I was crying because of how strong the dream was, how impactful the dream was. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up driving to uh the mosque. It was like five forty something to do Fajr at the mosque. And I was crying the entire way to the mosque. And subhanAllah, I think it's crazy that. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome back to the realest podcast in the dunya, the three Muslims. We're joined here with uh, a very special guest today, Brother Faraz Zahabi. Assalamu alaikum. So how's it going, man? Alhamdulillah, very good. How about Alhamdulillah, you guys? Alhamdulillah. Good, good. So uh, tell me what you trained today. What did I train today? Mm-hmm. Today, some MMA striking with wrestling. And then after that, some jiu-jitsu. We did jiu-jitsu class, so wrestling and jiu-jitsu um, from 11 till about 2.30. So it was a quite, uh, quite a workout today. Mashallah. Mashallah. All right, all right. So we're going to start with... Uh, a quick rapid question. Let's assume you're in a room right now with an mm-hmm. atheist, all right? And you have to convince this guy that God exists. Mm-hmm. And you have anywhere from two to five minutes, all right? So what would you say? Go. Well, there's, I'm not, honestly, I'm not in the conversion business, you know? I just tell people what I believe, what I think, how mm-hmm. I got there. And if they see it the way I do, fine. If they don't see it the way I do, I ask them to show me, you know, why not? Now, I also have to tell you, I don't believe in atheism. I don't believe atheists exist. I don't believe mm-hmm. there's actually any atheist. 
I believe that all human beings in their heart of hearts, they believe in one God. I believe you're born with the fitra and you cannot escape it. Okay, so this is my position. And I believe it's the Islamic position to be to be you know, completely honest. Uh, after studying Ghazali and various philosophers from Islam, I really believe that this is the heart of Islam. Islam is a natural religion and also a revealed religion. So there's nobody who's truly a, a, a real authentic atheist. The reason for that is, I always like to give the example of uh, a blind man. If you talk to a blind man and you ask him about the color red, no matter how intelligent he is, he has no idea what you're talking about. To him, the color red is just a sound. He believes you because other people tell him that they can see and that he's missing out on a certain uh, perception. And he, he has that leap of faith. He says, look, th this is not a huge conspiracy. People are telling me I have a handicap. I'm blind. And they're seeing these colors and I'm not. And they can prove it to me. They can call out an object that's on its way towards me. And when it arrives, it's close to me. They'll be like, check out the object. We told you it was coming your way. We saw it with this perception that you, have, you do not have. You do not have this perception. So when I talk to a blind man about the color red, he has no idea what I'm talking about. Because he's never experienced the color red. Hmm. I've never spoken to an atheist, talked to him about God. And he's like, what are you talking about? I've never heard of this. I have no conception of it whatsoever. Because you can understand my concept of God, you have, an, you have had a direct experience with this idea, God. So for instance, if I see red, I have a direct experience with red. And I've never seen a red bicycle in my life. But if you talk to me, if you show me a black bicycle, a green bicycle, and you say, remember that color red you saw? Yeah, imagine a red bicycle. We should paint this bicycle red. Now, it might be the first bi red bicycle in existence, but I can imagine it. Why? I've experienced red, and I've experienced bicycle, and now I can put them together. Okay? You cannot talk about the color red unless you have experienced the color red. You know, I don't know if you guys have kids, but I told my kids, don't touch this, it's hot. Don't touch it, it's hot. He has no understanding until he touches it and he burns his hand and then he realizes, now I understand what you're saying when you say it's hot. All kids burn themselves eventually. Why? They have no idea what you're talking about. When you tell them something is hot, you're just making a sound with your, with your, with your mouth that they, don't, they have no association with it. After they burn themselves, they say, oh, that word hot is associated now with that pain. When I talk about God and you converse with me, you tell me you don't believe it, you're, you're, in a way you're admitting, you're admitting you have this idea within you. Now imagine, <clears throat> imagine you were in a, in, a, in, a, in a dark room your entire life. You were in a dark room your entire life. You've never were exposed to a, a flower. You've never seen a flower. You're just sitting in the room your whole life. We've incubated you in this room. And one day I open the door and I show you a flower. Now you have the idea of flower in your mind. Now, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, drawing on many philosophers over the years. I'm kind of like putting it in a nutshell. Okay? Now that you've seen flower for the first time, we can talk about flowers. If I came into that room and you never saw flower and I started talking to you about flowers, you would have no idea, you have no experience with flowers. You have no idea what I'm talking about. Unless you have some sort of experience that's similar to flowers, I can't even describe you what a flower is. You won't understand. How come when I talk to people about God, they always tell me, yeah, well, I don't believe in God because if this, if God was so good, he would have removed all the pain. But you're conversing with me. You're talking to me about, you understand what I mean by God. Khalas, in my opinion, you have a belief in God. Deep in your heart of hearts, you have a belief in God. And you know, that's what the, the, the word kafir, 
uh, originates from. Somebody who's covering. He, what is he covering? He's covering his fitra. But deep down inside, he's not atheist. Deep down inside, in his heart of hearts, he is not atheistic. Now, I'll tell you that <clears throat> you know God even before you were born. Mm -hmm. okay. Why do we say that? Well, if you think about, you know, if you try to reverse your life back, if you play your life backwards, there was a time and place where you're in the womb and you didn't have an ego yet. You know, psychologists say the ego develops at the year of one age, at the year of, at the age of one years old. Then you develop an ego. You have that me. There's the world and there's me. Before that, you have no duality. You feel that there's just existence. You don't have an idea of who I am. There's no Firas Zahavi. I have nobody told me my name. I don't know that I'm, I'm, I'm separate from the world. I have no such experience. I'm in the womb. I have no experience with the dunya, the outside world. I've, I haven't tasted uh, honey yet. I haven't felt cold or warm. I don't know the difference. I haven't had any real experience. Now, this is very, very early on in, in existence. In that time, all you know is this oneness of existence. You have this oneness. There is no competing data. Hmm. There's no dunya and there's no me. There's no me. There's no, there's no uh, separation, let's say. It's just this experience of oneness. And Islam, in my opinion, is to go back. And if you reach the highest levels of Islam, it's to go back to that one level. And that, that one level, that one experience, is best, um, it's best expressed by the words, La ilaha illallah. When you see everything as metaphor and only Allah is objectively true, we can talk about that also later, it, Islam is the realization that only God exists objectively. Everything else, according to Ghazali, okay, I have to appeal to authority here because nobody's going to believe me. Who am I? <laughs> everything is metaphor. Everything, me and you, we're all metaphor. We don't exist the same way as God. God exists objectively and uniquely and in one sense. We are... We are just a reflection. So, for instance, uh, the famous uh, ayat in uh, the Quran is ayat al-nur. And it talks about God is a light. And the lamp is a reflection of that light. Ghazali appeals to that. He says, look, the, every human being is a point of awareness. Would you say that every human being has a, has a point of awareness within him? This point of awareness within you, it's not part of the dunya. You know, we call it consciousness. We call it, uh, you know, uh, the soul. We call it, there, there's something within us that we all experience that we don't observe in the dunya. You don't see it. A lot of times, uh, some philosophers refer to it as the beetle in the box. Okay, so uh, I'll give you a quick example, then I'll, I'll let you guys jump in, okay? <laughs> when you saw a dog for the first time, somebody pointed at that dog and said, that's a dog. We made the sound dog. You pointed at it. Now you associate that sound with that animal. If I show you enough dogs, you're like, hey, every time he says dog, I see a four-legged fuzzy creature with teeth and eyes, and there's various sorts of dogs. And the word dog refers to this object in the world. And you do that for every object. If I show you an orange, okay, I show you multiple oranges. When I make that sound orange, you associate it with the citrus, orange, uh, delicious, uh, sweet fruit. And you learn every object like this. However, when we talk about the soul or the con consciousness, we're never pointing in the dunya. We're saying, look, look within you. There's this thing that I cannot, even if I opened your brain and I opened up your brain, I looked inside, I wouldn't see it. This thing escapes the dunya. It's the light, if you want to call it, or the heart, as Ghazali says. But Ghazali says, not the lump of flesh in your chest. He's not talking about that. 
Um, that one thing within you that when I talk about it, you know what I'm talking about. But I've never pointed to it. Nobody's ever cut the brain open, found where it is, took it, held it in his hand. It's only known directly. Dal, taste. Now, this is a reflection of Allah's existence. We are a reflection of Allah's existence. We're shadows, and Allah, He exists objectively. Now, we got to talk about what is subjective and what is objective. There is nothing, I challenge anybody to bring me something in the dunya that is 100% perfectly objective. They will never be able to. Philosophers, we can punch a hole. We'll always find some level of subjectivity, except with one thing. Except with one thing. That's why I can't, when you tell me, oh, this guy's an atheist. He's not an atheist. In my opinion, he's not an atheist. He's not. There's no atheist in the world. There's no atheist. There's no human being who hasn't known the fitra. So I would say, okay, maybe he's a kafir. He's covering it. He's den in denial. But I don't believe he's truly atheist. Hmm. I agree, bro. That's why they're known as disbelievers and not unbelievers. Sah. Sah. You see, uh, the Quran doesn't really talk about atheism. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, I mean, if you look at, uh, I, that's why I, I, one of my, the most influential thinkers I, that I appreciate the most is Ghazali. Because he took this deep dive to try to really understand Islam at the deepest, deepest levels. And Islam is, and I, and, I, and I really feel that Muslims shouldn't shy away from this, Islam is a spiritual awakening. It should be a spiritual awakening, a spiritual, um, a spiritual experience. Now, I'm not talking about falling on the floor and shaking and speaking. And, you know, I'm not talking <laughs> about these kind of things. But it's a private, personal, everybody has their own private, personal experience, direct experience to God. What does it say in the Quran? Allah is closer to you than your juggler vein. Yeah. What's closer to you than your juggler vein? Allah, you have a direct personal experience to God, and that's every human being. There's no human being that was left out. So I don't really believe in atheists. They don't believe in my God. I don't believe in that they don't believe in my God. So we're still made. And I love to debate them, but I don't try to convince them because, in my opinion, it's their personal choice whether they whether they admit to themselves or not. And I love how the Quran puts it. When they're on the ship and the waves come, they all become believers. When they're hanging in the balance, all of a sudden all the fitrah is so clear and so, so true and so obvious, they revert back to their primordial selves. You cannot escape it. Me, I just give them time. And I really feel like it's a lot of times our fault that a lot of people are atheists. The Muslims, the Christians, the Jews, we, we give a bad name to religion. Why? Um, we do so much of the opposite of what our religion teaches us. We're supposed to be the most just, the most patient, the most friendly, the most spiritual, the most loving, but we don't live up to it. So people disassociate with organized religion because they see so many politicized uh, positions or motivations. People use religion for politics or they use religion for their own personal gain. And that obviously it's going to turn people off. You know, So I really believe Islam is about finding your innate uh, natural religion, rediscovering it. That's why the Quran calls itself the reminder. What's it reminding you of? Yeah. It's reminding you of what you already know. Yeah. See, in in uh, in Judaism, they have the they call it the Beni the Beni Noah. Those who survive the Ark, they stay true to the fitrah. They call the fitrah those of the Beni Noah, the, the the tribe that survived, the ones that stay true. Us, we call it the fitrah. The Christians, they say that no religion is a 
based on a historical event. They say if Jesus died and rose from the dead, Christianity is true and you're saved if you believe it. If he didn't rise from the dead, if this historical event did not happen, listen, this is very important because they took our, our natural religion and made it about history. They said, look, this event happened 2,000 years ago. I'm going to prove it to you. And when I prove it to you, if you don't believe in it, you go to hell. If you believe in it, you go to paradise. You go to heaven. But even the, the assassination of JFK, we're still not sure what happened. We had cameras. We have microphones. We have countless eyewitnesses. We have experts uh, uh, scrutinizing the footage, what happened, retracing it. We're still not sure if there were two shooters three bullets we're still not sure of so many things and that was a modern day historical event we're still not sure what caused who pulled the trigger and how imagine now you're asking me to prove something that happened 2000 years ago where the evidence came out 40 50 years later and never seen an eyewitness we've never had uh uh, uh primary source material nobody that was on the ground ever left any documentation for us to study. You're asking me to now to base a religion on a historical event. That's why Islam, if you look at Islam, it's telling you anybody who believes that, says this or that, it's all guesswork. They're full of doubt. And in the Quran, it says, it says to Muhammad, it says, you weren't, it tells him this about the story of Noah, about the story of Moses. You wouldn't know this unless we informed you. Your religion is not based on you retracing the footsteps of Moses per se. Yes, we believe in Moses by way of authority. The Quran says Moses is true. We believe in Moses. Yes, for sure, for certain. But what I'm saying is I don't have to go back and prove Moses. Hmm. It's not what our religion is about. Our religion is about the fitrah. Yes, we believe in it, but we're not sending you back in time. We're not asking you to be the world's greatest detective. <laughs> we're asking you to look inside and recognize that you are born with the idea of one God. And the Quran says something also very beautiful. When it promises you the afterlife, the next life, it asks you to think about how you got to this life. According to all these atheistic <laughs> philosophers, atheistic scientists, this existence shouldn't be. It's impossible that we're having this conversation. It would be if I if I brought them before the hum first human beings and I just showed them chemistry and physics you know, uh, uh, heavenly bodies colliding with each other. And somehow we can have this conversation in a parallel world and observe this world. And I say, look, there's going to be this thing called life that's going to emerge. No, impossible. There is no life. It's just chemistry and physics. Now life has happened, obviously. We're living it directly. And they still want to deny that life is going to happen again. So just to put it really simply, I, I remember my son, he was crying uh, because his grandfather died. His great-grandfather died and he was crying. And I asked him why he was crying. He said, oh, I'm never going to see him again. And I asked him why he says that. Why does he believe he'll never see his grandfather again? He said, oh, well, he's dead. I asked him one simple question. How did you meet him the first time? How you met him the first time? You're going to meet him again. Say, inshallah. Like Allah brought you in this world, he's going to bring you into the next world. How you, you can't understand? Well, look where you are right now. The miracle happened of life. And inshallah, it'll happen again. And nobody's logic is so great. And believe me, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lover of logic. Okay, Nobody's logic is so great. They, they have understood how life works. I don't care who you are. Nobody's logic is so great. What we have to do is observe what is happening. We can't explain it, but it is happening.
Allah says, God says in the Quran, He says, when the you see the grass die, Allah sends a rain and the grass is revived. That's how Allah is going to bring you back again. Yes, you will die, but you used to be dead. You used to be non-existent. If you want to use the word non-existent, you used to be something other than alive. Then you came to life. By how? <laughs> Try to explain it. Interesting theories, but they're all <laughs> weak at some point. They're all weak and doubtable. In the end, we lived it. We know that life comes to be. And some people say, oh, no, but it's going to end forever. How the hell do you, how do you know this? How do you know this? When the, it's, it's incredibly glaringly obvious that new life always comes. There's always new life. People are born every day. People are coming from another, another place of non-existence, a place of non-existence. People are being born all the time. People are coming. Things are coming to life all the time. Things are dying and coming to life all the time. So for me, I just observe what's happening around me. And I say, oh, it'll happen again in the future. And this is what the Quran tells you to do. Look around you. Isn't death and life a cycle? So I have great uh, uh, faith that, like I met my children in this world, I'll meet them again in another world, inshallah. 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 Man. Yo, this, this is amazing thus far. <laughs> the, the book that you're talking about from Imam Agazeli, is it uh, The Alchemy of Happiness? Alchemy of Happiness is a really good book. It's an autobiography. It's very, very good. But I really like the work of Frank Griffel. He wrote the philosophy of Ghazali. He kind of gives a great summation and the footnotes are amazing. They kind of send you off at different paths to find uh, different sources. That's really the work I always tell people. If you want to study Ghazali, read Frank Griffel. Why read Frank Griffel? Number one, he authenticized. He checked the authenticity of different letters that were written by Ghazali and to Ghazali. And he actually uh, uh, went out and and studied the scrolls themselves. Some things were never even copied from Ghazali. The man did a phenomenal job of bringing what Ghazali said to life, authenticating mm. it and reaching the most uh, authentic sources. And Ghazali's work is amazing. I feel that Frank Griffel did an incredible job of bringing it to life. Frank Griffel, for those who How are... How do you spell his last name? It's G-R-I, I think, F-F-E-L. Okay. Just like that, yeah. I, I switched it up. It's Frank Grissel, G R I S T L E. Mm. No, no, Griffel, Griffel. Oh, Griffel? Yeah. Give me one second here. Yeah. There we Come go. On, There's no, Frank Griffel, yeah. Griffel? G R I F F E L. Yeah, it's G R I F F E L. I'm adding that right to my I'm list. I'm going to get he's on that. He's the head of uh, Islamic studies at the Department of Religious Studies in Yale University. Incredible uh, book. Really, honestly. Oh, An incredible book. He put some fantastic, uh, sorry guys, I'm just trying to turn this off here. He did an incredible body of work. He authentic—he authentic authenticized um, the work. He did, it's such a such a brilliant book. Amazing. And from there, I think you can springboard into Ghazali's uh, other works. And Ghazali is not easy to understand because he's actually very open about not saying it directly. He doesn't believe in saying, uh, giving his position away directly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually had a, a friend who he was doing a podcast with me, uh, separate from this one, and he told me about Imam Ghazali. He put me on to the first book, which was just the first chapter of the Alchemy of Happiness, which was on knowing yourself and God. Mm. Man, mashallah, that that took me four months to complete, brother. Four yeah. months because I had to really take my time and like just understand everything that he was putting out there. But it's I, you know, I studied, I studied philosophy for about 10, 15 years before I started reading 
uh, Ghazali's work. And I'm happy I did because I would not have had an easy time trying to understand what he says. Um, he's, his, his work is extremely profound. He had an incredible understanding of epistemology, which was really um, amazing. But I feel like it's not an easy place to start. It's not an easy place to start. Like he says things without giving you a background. He reminds me of a lot of Immanuel Kant. Like it's almost like he's writing to professional philosophers. You'd have to be a almost like you'd have to study for 10, 15 years before you really even understand some of the things he says. Like I'll, I'll give you guys a for instance. Okay. Hmm. Um, this is, a, I call it the Abrahamic experience. I think it's a crucial position for all Muslims to understand. It's so important. You know, people ask me, why don't you believe in Thor? Why don't you believe in Zeus? Why don't you believe, why, why do you believe in this one God? Why not believe in the plethora of gods? And there's a very simple Quranic answer to this. It's a very, very simple Quranic answer. Now, picture, picture the idea of uh, Santa Claus. None of us here believe in Santa Claus, obviously. It's made up, right? But we believe in man, we believe in reindeer, and we believe in flying. These are all things you've experienced. When you were young, you saw a bird fly in the air. You had the idea now in your, in your mind about flying. You had no experience with flying before. You had no idea of the, of, of, about the idea of flying until you saw a bird fly in the air. And of course, you met other people. There were men and you saw a reindeer in, one day in the zoo or on a, in a book, on TV. Now you have the idea of reindeer. You can mix all those three together and make up something that's compounded, as we say in philosophy. You compound it. You took two ideas and you mixed them together. So for instance, I can, you know, people say, oh yeah, why don't you just believe in the spaghetti monster? The spaghetti monster is a collage of ideas. It's I multiple ideas coming together. So for instance, if I have the idea of God in my mind and I have the idea of war, I can make the God of war. You understand? If I have the idea of man and I have the idea of marshmallow, I can make marshmallow man. Now when you compound things, even one of the most stern atheists, David Hume, he will admit to this. He says, when you compound things, those things may or may not exist. However, things that are in your mind were once in your senses. So for instance, if you if you know the taste of honey, it's because once upon a, if you if you could think of the taste of honey, once upon a time, honey touched your tongue. It had to go through the senses. If you know the color red, like we talked about earlier, if you can imagine the color red, it's because your eyes, once upon a time, red went through your eyes. It went in the senses. Nothing went, nothing went in the mind that wasn't in the senses, John Locke would tell you. So until you burn yourself, you can never know, you can never think about the pain of burning yourself. Hmm. It has to be first in the senses, and then you can have it in the mind. Once you have it in the mind, then you can do all sorts of collages. I love how uh, René Descartes puts it. He says, look, no matter what you draw on a piece of paper, it's never original. It's always things you saw in the world and you mix them together. He goes, if you, me if you, invent if you picture a man with a, a glass head, a bubble head, a made of glass. That's because you, you've experienced, you've seen men in the world and then you've experienced glass and you say, what if I mix in my mind the idea of a man with a glass head? There are no such men in the world. There's no men out there walking around with a glass head. But you can't deny that there is glass and there are human beings. Everything you compound, bring together, I'll give you a famous example, one more just to make it simple. Uh, David Hume says, oh, what about a golden mountain? You saw a mountain in the world. You saw gold. One day you saw a gold chain or something like that. And then you decided to imagine up a golden mountain. Imagine there was a golden mountain in the world. Golden mountains don't exist. This is what the Quran is telling you. It's like, 
don't believe in the pagan gods. The pagan gods are people taking what they lust for and mixing it with the idea of God. So you love war? Oh, I pray to the god of war. Oh, you love thunder because it's powerful and it's majestic? Ah, oh, Zeus is the god of thunder. You're mixing ideas. You can make up a crocodile god. You can make up the spaghetti. You can make things up. I'm not about making things up. I'm about seeing what's inside my mind and tracing back where each idea came from. We're taking inventory. We're taking out every idea. Where did this idea come from? How could it be in my mind? How did it get there? Now, John Locke, the way he described it is, you're born as a tabula rasa. You're born as a white sheet of paper, okay? Or a blank canvas, if you will. And then you're born in this world and you have experiences. You feel heat. Okay, so now we're going to draw on the blank canvas. He experienced heat. Okay, he experienced, I don't know, um, the taste of something sweet. Okay, so now he knows about sweetness. Oh, he experienced uh, the sound of a car driving by. Okay, now he knows the rumblings of an engine. And we list all the things you've experienced now, all these experiences, or we're listing them, we're listing them, and they become every day there's new experiences, and he can mix and match them in his mind in different ways. He can imagine new things. He can imagine a flying carpet now. He saw a bird fly, he saw a carpet, flying carpet. But a philosopher knows what's imaginary and what is that went through the senses. Now, Immanuel Kant famously asked, Okay, there's this tabula rasa, this blank sheet of paper, and all these experiences are happening. But Kant asked, where did this tabula rasa come from? <laughs> this blank sheet of paper. This point of awareness. What is this awareness? And again, this is mentioned in the Quran, by the way. Who gave, when God says, who gave you hearing and seeing? You have this awareness. You, you are aware in the, you are aware of the dunya. A rock is also chemistry and physics. Like me, I'm chemistry and physics. But that rock has, to my, to my understanding, has no awareness of the dunya around it, the world around it. We have this awareness. That's why I always tell people, think of yourself as a point of awareness. And then remove the idea of being a point. You know, Ghazali describes when you say Allahu Akbar, like when you pray, when you say Allahu Akbar, he's talking about that, that the significance of that movement is you're taking the dunya and you're throwing it behind you. Now you have to remember, even the body is dunya, worldly thing, for those who don't speak Arabic, as a worldly thing. When you're, when you're in your salah, you should, there should be not, nothing else in your mind but Allah, but God. You're trying to go back to that oneness that you existed, before, because don't forget, even your ego is dunya. We told you your name is so-and-so. It's all construct, social construct. Everything that's not Allah is dunya. When you do Allahu Akbar, you're supposed to chuck the whole world behind you. You're supposed to be like when you were in the earliest stages of existence, unknown, unknown who you are, what you, what you are. Even, even the you, even the me, has to be chucked. Even me is dunya. There should be nothing left. You should go back to that blank sheet of paper once again. And then you're going to have a direct experience of God. Hmm. It's heavy. <laughs> if you read the Quran, it's always about dunya and akhirah. <laughs>
dunya and akhirah. Bro, so there's something on my mind that uh, I wanted to know. What is your personal journey to Islam? Uh, for a lot of born Muslims, I consider them reverts, not in the sense that, you know, they came onto Islam, um, you know, out of birth, but they came onto it on their own accord later in their life. So what was your journey like? Was it was it like holding onto it like a hot coal growing up in or at least being here in the West? Or was it something that you always held on to? Uh, well, no, I was I was very westernized when I was young, super westernized. Um, learned very little about Islam early on. But all the things I learned about Islam early on, because my dad did bring a sheikh to kind of talk to us when we were kids. And I realized that a lot of the things that he taught us was the, the things that gave me success in life. Like, uh, you know, like he, he always taught me that you have to see good in everything. God is the, the wisest. Nothing bad ever truly happens to you. It's only a fitna. It's a challenge. How are you going to react? These things made me, in my opinion, help me become very successful. And I didn't have many uh, negative feelings. I had very positive feelings. Because when a challenge would happen, I was like, oh, that's a fitna. I'm going to get past it. There's going to be something good in it. There's a khair. There's something positive in there. I just don't see it now. I have this faith that something good is going to come from this. And, you know, just that attitude. And, and you know, he used to teach us that, you know, the Quran, it says, you're never going to have a test greater than what you can pass. Now, when you're young, you know, you, you believe that. It makes you extremely powerful, strong in your mind. Because when challenges come and people tell you it's impossible, you'll be like, well, it can't be impossible because I wouldn't have this test if it was impossible. That's where my mind was very young. So they nurtured my mind very young to never quit, to never see, uh, to never despair. And I could think, I honestly think that I would have never been successful if I was not uh, molded in that way at a young age because I didn't have any critical thinking. They just kind of... They just kind of encouraged me and set me out into the world. And I always had a deep, deep belief in God because it was always my, it was my religious beliefs that always gave me success. You know, I could have quit a long time ago. I could have, I could have um, been intimidated and not, never went down certain paths I went down. And, but it gave me that courage and that ability to try and never give up. And I find that that's such a powerful recipe for success. Alhamdulillah. No, Guys, I, I gotta be right back. I put okay. some meat out to thaw. Okay, go for it. I'm just gonna check on one of my sons. No worries, okay, no hold on one second. I'm gonna check on one of my sons real quick. Yeah, go for it, bro. It's been very, very real so far, mashallah. <laughs> Good, I'm happy. Oh my god. Okay, Habibi, I'm waiting for you. Sorry, guys. My daughter, she doesn't do, she doesn't read, so she's gonna have to. Uh, uh, Noah, Noah, Noah. I have one of my sons coming home from school, and I gotta have him pick up my daughter at the bus stop. She's gonna double check. Take your time, Norris. You guys know what Full Metal Alchemist is? Yeah, I do. You know, Faraz is like the uh, the Muslim alchemist. <laughs> <laughs> Mashallah. This is amazing stuff, by the way. Alhamdulillah. Thank you, brother. 
You know, I really wish um, uh, more Muslims would, uh, you know, because you know, this is all in the Quran. I mean, if you read the, the there's, a, there's a verse in the Quran about Abraham, alayhi salam, where he says, oh, I believe that this, the moon is my, my God, then the stars. And then he says, oh, it's, it's the sun. He realized that he's mixing the idea of God with all these deities because the pagans worship the moon, stars, and sun, one greater than the next. And he realized, no, 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 God is one. And if you read the passages carefully, it's telling you this is, this is that's why I call it the Abrahamic, um, Abrahamic experience because this is part of our religion. And what does the Quran say? It says, tell the Christians and the Jews that Abraham was on the path before the scripture. What does that mean? We were Muslim before scripture came. Before you heard about this or that that happened in history, we were already Muslim. Abraham alayhi salam was already Muslim. Adam alayhi salam was already Muslim. Islam came before the scriptures. Mm. Hence, it's a natural inborn religion. It's a you naturally know, born religion. Yeah, it's amazing because I feel like even more evidence towards this fact that it's something that we're just born with is all the examples you gave were based on observation. You observe, you observe, you combine right but and this goes back to what you said before about allah being objective and all of us being subjective right you know allah says in, in surah al-khlas in the definition of allah Qul allahu ahad, allahu ah. samad. yeah so. and samad is is the one who doesn't need anything from anyone but everything depends on him mm-hmm. and if you look at the end of it ahad, there's nothing even comparable to allah say so, that again and translate it is, is there's ah. Like nothing, there's nothing like unto him. Right? There there's is nothing. nothing, there is nothing like him. Yeah. He is unique yeah. in class. Yeah. There is no other, there is nobody shares in this objectivity. Nobody shares in this level of existence. Yeah. Hmm. Hence, we are all metaphor. Hmm. We are all metaphor. You know, you guys ever hear of the ship of thesis? No. Okay. So ship of thesis is, this guy's name is thesis. Okay. And he has a ship. Now, I'm going to give you guys my variation of it. He has a ship. This ship has 99 parts. Every day he takes the ship out. Every day there's one part that needs replacement. Now, he's traveling back and forth with this ship for months and months. Every day he's replacing a new piece. After 99 days, 99 pieces have been replaced. And every day he goes in the market and he fish and he goes for, to, to fish. And he, everybody sees him riding on his ship. And everybody's like, this is Thesis and his ship. We see him every day. We know him well. And every day he has to change a piece. After 99 days, all the original parts are in a warehouse somewhere and he has new parts and he's still going up and down the sea with that ship. Then one day I come about and I take those 99 original parts and I rebuild the ship. But he's still going out every day to the market and fishing with his his ship. Now we have two ships. And I ask you guys, which one is the ship of thesis? Which one is the original? One of them, he's on it every day. And the other one was the original parts. Mm. Mm. There is no objective answer. The ship of thesis is a metaphor in the mind. The ship of thesis is a metaphor in the mind. There are just 99 pieces here and 99 pieces there. So 198 pieces. You projected it from your mind that this and that is labeled ship of thesis. There is no actual ship of thesis out there in the world. There's no objective ship of thesis. Similarly, how the ship of thesis is metaphor, your body is metaphor. Your body, the cells are changed every day. Some cells are changed. Within the first seven to 10 years of your life, every single cell in your body is changed, yet we still call you by your name. 
So that's why we tell atheists, well, I'm not the body. My body's changed throughout time. <laughs> I've changed all the parts, yet you still call me by the same name. You still consider me to be the same life form, same timeline of existence. But every, if I'm just physics and chemistry, how come now that every single element of my physics and chemistry has changed and you still refer to me by the same name? I'm more than my physical body. You know, uh, what's his name? The famous atheist Hitchens said, I don't have a body. I am a body. It's a very interesting comment. He's saying, all I am, there's nothing more to me than this flesh and bones. I am a body. Well, then, I love how uh, John Lennox responds. He says, well, why didn't he survive his own death? Because when he died, his body's still there. It's, uh, there was a point where he died and his 100% of his body's still there. Hmm. It's not just the body. He's something else, too. Because we can we cannot point to him and say he's dead. Whereas in the body's still there. Why why is he how do you become dead if there's nothing else? The fact that I can point to a dead body and a life body, the fact that there's a difference between them, that means there's something else other than the body. However, the problem with them is they're they're so and I, I bring me any any atheist philosopher or scientist you want on this channel, and I'll have a discussion with them happily. How come they can tell the difference if all you are is a body? There has to be an element that's different now they're going to say oh well one is functioning one is not each functioning body has a consciousness but because i can't turn it to phys phys physics and chemistry because it's beyond physics and chemistry they automatically say it doesn't exist but by saying that it doesn't exist they're referring to it which ironically proves that it exists how does he know what i'm talking about i've never i've never pointed to anything in the universe and said, look, that, there's consciousness right there. <laughs> consciousness is only known perfect by, by first-hand experience. By you, by you admitting to, to understanding what, what I mean by consciousness, you've, you've accepted consciousness. Like, for instance, I'll give you a, a, an, a, maybe a simpler example to, to understand that, that uh, um, uh, what's his name? Philosopher uh, uh, Searle, uh, Professor Searle says, he says, look, could you imagine a zombie, uh, a dead person walking around? He's dead, but he has no soul. We can all imagine zombies. Okay, well, that proves the soul exists because you, the fact that you could imagine me minus something, there is something there for you to minus. So uh, John Searle says, look, just the fact that you could imagine zombies proves that there's something more than just the body. Because what is, if there's nothing more than the body, what are you, what are you, what are you deducting? What are you, what are you taking out? The soul exists, the mind exists, consciousness exists, but it's known directly. We know it via first-person experience. And this, my friends, is the most certain thing we know. Because, you know, Ibn Taymiyyah will tell you, look, there's, there's, there's scientific knowledge, you know, science, uh, knowledge of the senses, you know, uh, experimentation, uh, you know, something sweet, you have to taste it. To know if something is hot, you have to touch it. Okay, there, there's empirical evidence. Then there's logic. Well, empirical evidence can be wrong because your senses can be lying to you. We can talk about that later. But this is without beyond a shadow of a doubt true. Like, for instance, the smartest man in history at one point, he was at that time the smartest man in history. Aristotle saw the sun go around the earth. He thought the sun goes around the earth. Why? His eyes are telling him. But it was an optical illusion. It's not the sun that goes around the earth. It's the earth that goes around the sun. But he believed that the sun goes around the earth. Why? He observed it. And everybody around him observed it. And it made sense to them. Your, your, your senses could be uh, misleading you in many, many ways. 
And what about logic? Well, show me two logicians from their time that actually agree. Aristotle didn't agree with Plato. Galileo didn't agree with Aristotle. Uh, Leibniz didn't agree with Sir Isaac Newton. Uh, even to our modern day and age, Schopenhauer didn't agree with Heisenberg. They both don't agree. The, Ibn Tamir is asking you, whose logic are we going to use? Who's such the, who's the greatest? Whose logic is so perfect we can rely on it? So if empiricism doesn't bring us to certainty, logic doesn't bring us to certainty because your logic could always be fallible. You could always make an error. And we have a, an abundance of proof in philosophy that logic could be uh, mistaken. I'll give you guys a great example later. What are we going to use to know, to be certain? Well, you know, Ghazali says, look, God made it so easy. You can't be wrong. God gave you the fitra and you know it firsthand. You don't have to use logic. You don't have to use a scientific experiment. You don't have to go out in the dunya and find uh, something that happened 2,000 years ago or you have to uh, see God through, this, through the clouds. This is not how you get to God. You know God through direct experience. You know him personally. Everybody has their personal experience with God. In the Quran, it says, everywhere you look, you'll see the face of Allah. If you chuck the dunya behind you, if you chuck everything in the dunya behind you, what is there left? Allah says, when all has perished, there will remain the face of Allah. The Muslim is supposed to do this in his lifetime. Hence, the hadith of the Prophet says, die before you die. When you die, the dunya is gone. Allah says, when all has perished, there will remain the face of Allah. When you chuck everything truly, when you've let go of the dunya truly, and this is what salah is about. It's about practicing letting go of the dunya. When you say Allahu Akbar, you're supposed to chuck everything. You're not supposed to think or feel or sense anything but this point of awareness. It's a practice. You get good at it. The more you practice, the more aware you become of Allah. And the less the dunya is, is impressive to you. The more certain you've, ha you've had this experience, the more connection you have with this eternal experience, the more certain you are of the akhirah, the more certain you are that that you have a direct experience of God. And the more certain you are of your faith. <laughs> till you're 100% certain. Let's say you have a, a new revert who's finally coming on Dean and learning about the basics, starting to pray. What's your top advice to give this individual to increase their iman? Well, it, it's tough, you know, because I would say that religion now is, is facing new challenges. Religion is constantly bombarded and criticized and ridiculed and looked down upon and put in an unfavorable light. So you have to give them a kernel of experience. You have to give them an experience that's so powerful that no amount of ridicule, like I often ask myself, would I still be Muslim if I was the last Muslim on earth? If you don't answer yes to that question, I don't really believe you have a strong faith. If everybody in the world left Islam, I'm telling you I would still be Muslim. Why? Because I've had this internal experience that supersedes all the rituals. Now, the rituals are important. Don't get me wrong. They're paramount. They're important. But if you're praying mechanically, if all your Quran, Quranic recitation is mechanical, if it doesn't go further than the throat, so to speak, then your relationship with God is very superficial. 
And that's the, the biggest of tragedies. So what is the experience that makes you reach a level where you would never consider disbelieving in God? Because in my, look, in my position, I doubt everything. I doubt even who I am. But I don't doubt God. The God is the only thing I have. I'm, look, I, 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 say, I say I believe many things. But I only know one thing. No is like, I can't be wrong. I say I know God exists. I don't know any, anything else. I just, it's all belief. It's all belief in faith. And it's, you know, in the Quran it says, believe this, believe that. And it says, know this. Know about Allah. You know Allah. You know God. God is another level. God is the ultimate level of certainty. God calls himself Al-Haq. God is the truth. Everything else, my friends, is to some degree true or false. There is no absolute truth outside of God. God is the only glaring 100% true. Even 1 plus 1 equals 2, I can doubt it. Even 1 plus 1, and believe me, I can, we can do it in philosophy. We can bring a doubt to 1 plus 1. We don't know if mathematics is actually referring to something out there in the world. Is it all just mental gymnastics, mathematics? We have these doubts. We have these discussions. <laughs> but one thing I cannot doubt, one thing I cannot doubt is... I love how Avicenna put it. There is existence. I don't have to point to it. I just know it. It's self-evident, as we say in philosophy. It's self-evident. It's glaringly self-evident. More so than a triangle having three points or three sides. Something that is considered analytically true, can't be doubted to a certain extent, but it's still some kind of, it's still happening within my mind. It's still, it still has some limitations in terms of its definition and scope. So uh, to answer your question, you have to, that's why salat is so powerful because if, if you're doing salat mechanically, it's kind of tough to do every day, all day long. But if it's a practice about letting go of the dunya, then that Muslim, in my opinion, he's never going to uh, lose his faith. If it's a practice of connecting, you know, salat comes from the word connect, to connect. What are you connecting to? This fitra within me. There's no There's no way you could, you can, you can you can give me the most powerful syllogisms. You can run the most scientific. I don't care what you do. You can never shake my fitra. My fitra is unshakable. I don't care how many. I don't care if tomorrow they prove evolution to be true. In my mind, that's how Allah made the world, and we could talk about that as well. Also, because you know, what does it mean? They can they can only prove it to be true to a certain extent. But even then, to me, it would mean that Allah made the world this way. I'm sure of one thing. Everything else is up to interpretation. Everything mm. else is. Uh, I, it's beyond my understanding. So uh, look, this is the best I understand it. This is Allah's not asking me. God doesn't ask you to become the world's most logical human being to know Him. Now it's good to be logical. There's over 300 verses that praise logic and, and push us to being logical. Don't get me wrong. Logic is fantastic. You can never let go of logic. We're married to logic. However, La ilaha illallah, the shahada, is. For the ultimate doubter, the person who doubts, 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 doubts everything. And at one point, he reaches a point where he cannot doubt. Because this, even doubting now would prove this. This is what la ilaha, if you look at Islam, Islam is la ilaha. There are no gods. Islam is the closest thing to atheism. Atheism and Islam are very close. Islam destroyed, what did Prophet Muhammad do? He destroyed all the pagan gods. 
There's one God you cannot destroy. There's one left. You, we doubted them all. We doubt. We don't believe in this one. This one has no proof. These are all uh, your wishful thinking. We're the most atheistic. However, we realized through the fitra, wait, there's this one last. You can't grasp it. You can't doubt it. When you try to doubt it, it proves it. And it has to do with existence. Every time you try to doubt existence, well, you know what? Your doubt is proof of existence. You've reached this point where you see this one shining entity of existence that always was, always was, will ever always be. It encompasses everything and nothing encompasses it. And it is defined exactly as is described in the Quran. And it is al-haq. It is the only thing that is true. But it's surpassed uh, scientific data, uh, scientific um, uh, scrutiny, or empirical knowledge, I should say, excuse me, empirical knowledge, or logical syllogisms. It's beyond logical syllogisms. We, call, we say it's transcended. It's, it's transcended all our ways of knowing things. However, it is at the same time undeniable and in our face all the time. So if somebody has a connection with this, they can, there's nothing that could shake your faith. Nothing. Uh, there's just really nothing. Hmm. What's crazy is that there are some people who are in this atheistic state, right? And then they start to realize what you just said, that there is something else. You know, that this isn't all that there is. And then they get stumped on this idea that they are God. <laughs> That's laughable. Well, we'll see when they get sick and die and slowly die from cancer and they have, you know, stage four cancer and they're crippled. And we say, you think you're God? You think you're mm -hmm. God? You know, where is your God? Where are you now if you're God? Where, how, how come you're so weak as a kitten if you're God? You have to understand our hearts, not the lump of flesh, as Ghazali says, are a mirror to the one existing God. So the, it's the ultimate, it is the ultimate egotistical thing to say is that I am God. That's the most ultimate level of arrogance. We are observing God. What did the Prophet ﷺ say? Why did Allah create the, the dunya? Allah was a treasure that loved to be known. Allah was a treasure that loved to be known. We are here to experience God. Not to be distracted by the dunya. Now there's, listen, I, I challenge any atheist in the world to find me a third option. A third option. There are only two options. There's believing in God. And I recommend you go to the natural religion. Discover it. Or the only other path is nihilism. I don't know if you guys are familiar with nihilism. And nihilism, my friends, is hell. There is no other paths. There are two paths. And you have free will to choose either one. But there is no third path. If somebody out there believes there's a third path, bring it to me. I would love to see it. There is no other third path. There is God or nihilism. Hence, you are in this dunya to choose. If an atheist is telling me I choose nihilism, I believe personally that at the last moment he's going to flip 180. When he realizes what he's chosen, he's, he's going to crumble psychologically. When death comes close to him, 
he's going to revert so quickly. When he has a realization, this realization, when he comes to understand, that's why I tell people about nihilism. You want to get an atheist out of atheism? Understand nihilism and present it to him. It will drive him mad after a while because, they're, 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 you know, they say ignorance is bliss. Yeah, if you're an ignorant person and you, don't, you didn't think about it. <laughs> but trust me, that ignorance is only, a, it's only superficial. One day it's going to slap you. Even the most ignorant person is eventually going to become face-to-face with nihilism. Unless you get blindsided by a bus and you didn't see your death coming, well, then, you know, Allah is going to decide what happens to you. But, uh, as he always does, but if you're faced with nihilism and you understand nihilism, truly understand nihilism, I think it's only ego that stops you from believing in God. It's the hatred of traditional religions. Oh, I'd have to admit these guys are right, but I despise this group. I have a cultural uh, dislike for them. Hence, I'm going to refuse to uh, believe in God. I think it comes down to that. The friction comes from them not wanting to associate with characters in the past that gave religion a very, very bad name. And there are many. And I understand about that. I'm, I'm sympathetic to them. I tell them, look, you know, um, nobody gives Islam a bad name more than the Muslims. That's the truth. We should stop blaming everybody. Look at ourselves first. Are you the most fair person you've ever met? Islam is about justice. You know, if you, if you had to put Islam in a, in a nutshell, you had to describe Islam, I would say, oh, Islam is about justice. It's about what's fair. Maybe what we consider fair, seven, you know, like the principles of Islam is about being just and fair. If you're a just and fair person, you have no harm coming to you. Now, the greatest injustice is to, to, deny, to deny God, in my opinion. This is what I understand. It's to deny God. So they're creating an injustice. But, are Muslims giving Islam a good name? They should be able to print as many bad books about Islam as they want. But when people meet Muslims, they should be like, hey, those books, those media, it's all, it's all garbage. That's what should happen. So when Muslims interact with the world, they should remember to be the most fair, the most kind, the most generous, and the least in love with the dunya from all the, the groups of people. And you, you, you give from what you love. You give to charity from what you love. The dunya has to have no grip on you. And you have to do things because for the, for the love of God and because Allah loves these things. And you love these things because Allah loves these things. Then they can, write as much, they can do as many cartoons as they want. They can, they can bash us in the media all day long. When people meet Muslims, they're like, no, Muslims are my favorite people. But unfortunately, Muslims, many of them, you know, certain, not, not, but certain give us a bad name. And it's a shame. That's true. So, real quick, if you could, could you break down what does nihilism mean? Because there's, there's probably going to be a lot of people watching. Who, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, they, yeah. They have like a brief understanding. Yeah. Hold, hold on one second, okay? I'm just going to check on my daughter. If she's no in the reason. house, we can go yes, a little further. Yes, go. Check. So I really do want to talk about the MMA and all that. Yeah, that's my. That's what I'm really trying to get at. I got so many questions when it comes to we that. We can wrap this after nihilism, inshallah. Inshallah. I'm just going to check on my, on my son. Hey, Noah. Yeah. You at the bus stop? Yeah, they just came out. Okay, you have Ghazala with you? Mm-hmm. Okay, yalla. Text me when you're in the house. Are you in the house? Okay. Uh, we're walking there right now. Okay, text me when you're in the house. Yeah. And I'm on the podcast still. Okay. Yalla, have you. I'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Okay. Sorry about that, guys. 
Okay, so yeah, what is nihilism? Well, <sighs> nihilism is actually a very difficult to, thing to explain. Nietzsche did a phenomenal job of presenting nihilism to the world, but it's just such a, man, it's such an incredible topic. Nihilism is, if I can put it in a nutshell, it's the understanding that if God doesn't exist, then whatever happens in this world doesn't matter. Whether you live or die, whether your precious children die or not, it's all irrelevant. There is no good or bad. There's no evil. There is no happy or sad. It's all utterly meaningless. You will never exist again, and your existence is utterly meaningless. This was all for nothing. Actually, it would have been better never to exist at all, because now <laughs> that you saw what you're missing out on, it's actually torturous. I wish I was never born. I wish I was always just, you know... Uh, the element elementary particles or whatever any 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 elementary substance and i wish i never became this complex body witness the potential of this world for happiness and love and and caring and relation uh, the richness this world can it can it can offer and then have it snatched away from me and find out that we're we are all utterly meaningless there is nothing that has value this is a a very difficult and unpleasant thing to experience. It's a very difficult and unpleasant thing. And, and what I just said doesn't do justice to it. Okay, we, Sometimes it's referred to as looking into the abyss. <laughs> sometimes referred to as looking into the abyss. If you do a lot of soul searching and you're an atheist, you will, in the end, be tormented. Now, those who are not tormented that are atheists, they don't do so, any soul searching. But like, you know, you have some celebrity atheists. I believe in my heart of Mars. I believe that they are tortured deep downside and they're looking for a way out and they're just going to find one closed door after another. Mm -hmm. Why? Because for thousands of years, atheists have tried to find some open door, some escape hatch, and all they ever find is a closed door. There is only one door. There is only one way. You have to discover the fitra. And that is best expressed as la ilaha illallah. There is no deity other than Allah. We can doubt them all. You should doubt them all. You should disbelieve in them all. And if you try to believe, disbelieve in God, Allah, you will find abundant proof. You will be unable to escape this one God. So nihilism is to never admit to that, to always see that the world is... Because you know what? If, if God does exist... Okay, everything's gonna be made just because, by definition, God is just. God is good. Everything is. You know, I saw I saw a really uh, amazing uh, uh, meme yesterday, which which was posted by one of my favorite uh, channels. Uh, I think it's he calls it um, theology vlog. A convert from vlogging uh, theology. Yeah, vlogging vlogging theology. theology. I love. <laughs> we just talked with him. We just talked two days ago. I love I him. That. You know, I wrote him. I wrote him an email once saying I would love to buy him a new mic. Like I would like to buy him an expensive mic. Just so I can, I could send it to him. Every time he talks in the mic, I, I'm, I'm going to get some benefit. 
You know, I offer him. He never replied to me, but I'm still that. I still want to buy him some expensive equipment because I love his channel. And I feel like I, I would love to invest in his channel somehow, some way. Do you have his number? No, I, I don't. Actually. Well, I'll pass it on to you. Oh, really? It'll be great. Inshallah, Thank you. Yeah. I really love his material. And he had this mm -hmm. one meme, you know, Colin Powell recently he died. And it's him get reaching to the gates of heavens. And I don't know if you guys saw this meme, but there are like all these faces in the background. And the angel at the gate says, oh, we have millions of Iraqis. They want to have a word with you. Just because you died doesn't mean you escaped what you did. <sighs> Nothing you did in this world is, is, is gone. Everything you did, every word you said is still there. Every action you have done still exists somewhere. It's accounted for. When you die, you think Hitler escaped because he killed himself? No, he has not escaped. This world is a just world. It's a fair world. We believe in God, so we have to believe the world is just. Yeah, when you die, you think you escaped? No, no. Those millions of Iraqis, my friend, they're still waiting for you on the other side. Now, let me give you a little food for thought for those of you who think this is preposterous, what I just said. If you're a pure logician, meaning you believe only in, you believe in logic and no nothing that is regarding an emotion you're not you're not believing in narratives you're believing only in pure logic you're a pure logician well Ghazali tells you well how do you know you're not in a dream right now there's no logical way to know that you're not in a dream this is a question that stood the test of time no philosopher ever proved a way for us to know that you're not in a dream think about for a moment when you're in a dream when you're in the dream, every character in the dream seems real to you and you feel at that moment that this is reality. You don't know that you're a person in your bed right now, not in this moment. And it, when you wake up, it feels like, oh, the dream was so short. It was such a, you know, maybe I dreamt for 20 minutes. However, when you're in the dream, it feels like a lifetime. Sorry, one second, guys. Alhamdulillah, okay. she's small, so if she doesn't see me, she freaks out. Yeah, we'll, we'll wrap this up uh, real quick, and then we can start the next one. Okay, well, uh, like so you you cut that part out, and you just, I'll just get back to uh, the, the yeah. part of the dream. Okay, so when you're in a dream, you can't tell the difference in the dream. This is what Ghazali is telling you. Descartes said the same thing. Many philosophers touched on this, okay? How can we know when we're in a dream, if we're logically in a dream? Can you decipher it somehow? You cannot. I don't care what kind of weird dream you're having. It all makes sense to you in that world at that time. It's just as weird as this world we're living in right now. If you're a pure logician, all you know is when you die, you go into another, excuse me, when you sleep, you go into another world. That's all the experiences you have. And what does, what does the Quran say? When, uh, when God is going to raise people from the dead, he's going to ask them, how long were you in the dunya? Oh, a day, a day and a half, a small time. Hmm. It's exactly how when you're, when you're dreaming, you could have dreamt you were a young boy who became a, a doctor and you went to school for many years. That's all just a blink of an eye that happened. There. Well, the dunya, this dunya is going to seem like that again to us when we wake up in the next world. As a matter of fact, if you in the Quran says every time you sleep, Allah takes your soul. Where does he take you? He takes you to another world. All you know in this world, all you know is you're traveling from one world to the next. That's actually all the proof you have. If you're truly a logician, all the proof you have is that you wake up in one world and then in another and then in another and then in another and then in another and you have no idea how you got there. And some of these worlds are great and sometimes they're nightmares.
and you can wake up in a nightmarish world and you can wake up in a in a in a heavenly world a, a paradise world so that's why you want to be good that's why you want to be fair to yourself because any injustice is done only to yourself as the quran says you're only doing injustice to yourself you're bringing this on to yourself every negative thing that ever happened to you is brought on to you by yourself so in my opinion islam is talking to you from a position of pure reason if you were purely logical you would ask the same question René Descartes asked. You would ask the same question Ghazali asked. How do you know you're not dreaming? You know, one one uh, uh, Chinese sage once said, I read this a long time ago. I haven't studied Eastern philosophy, but he says, I don't know if I'm a man dreaming I'm a butterfly or a butterfly dreaming I'm a man. If you're a purely logic, a, a logical person, all you know is you're going from one world to the next. And this one seems, this one that you wake up in seems to have continuity. However, when you're in a dream, it also has continuity. You feel like, let's say, I don't know, let's say you dream you're a professor. Well, you didn't just appear that day. You feel like you were always a professor in that dream, so to speak. Hence, when we speak in small circles, when, when logicians are in small circles and they're talking, they're like, look, how can we tell? How can we decipher from one experience and the other? The truth is we cannot. We only do it on sheer blind faith. This is a very important point. We only do it on sheer blind animalistic faith. Hmm. that makes me remember this thing that i refer to as a, a lucid moment you know like when you're sleeping yeah and then you're dreaming and then it's like you realize like oh i'm i'm, I'm sleeping right or i'm i'm dreaming right now and then it becomes like a lucid dream mm -hmm. or you just completely wake up out of the dream yeah. but in real life like we have those i don't know i can't speak for everyone but i've had these like moments where i realize like I'm alive right now. Like I'm mm -hmm. actually experiencing all of this. And it's like for that brief moment, I become lucid. And um, there's a reason why I was going to say that. I don't know. Disregard, <laughs> though. It's completely left. No worries. No worries. That was a, that was a mind bender, bro. Yeah. I think that's a high note to end this one off. I have a quick question, bro, before yeah. we end off uh, the first DP. It's from the our editor for the clip channel. He had this question that he always wanted to ask you if you had the opportunity. Mm -hmm. So uh, he says, Salam, I have a question for Coach Fadal Zahabi. Uh, if he mentions Ibn Arabi or Ibn Sina, because I've seen him mention these people before, please ask, since a lot of these scholars have done takfir on these figures because of their aqidah, how would you differentiate between their correct ideas and incorrect ones when reading? And do you recommend them to lay viewers? No, I wouldn't recommend to lay viewers. I would say this, okay? I would say exactly like Hazali says. It doesn't matter who said what. You have to bring every idea and scrutinize it. And see if it's true or not after you've scrutinized it. It doesn't matter who said it. It could be Adolf Hitler that said it. It could be the, the best or the worst person. It doesn't matter. Divorce it from who said it. Don't take it by authority. Bring it here and let us examine it and see if it's true, if it stands on its own merits. Now, there's a reason why he said that. Because, you know, like, for, for instance, a lot of Muslims say, don't use philosophy. Philosophy is haram. Well, let me ask you this. What is philosophy? What are you saying that is haram? When Ghazali said, when Ghazali said, when he wrote the tahafut, the destruction of the philosophers, he wasn't referring to philosophers or logicians, people using logic. He was referring to a group of Muslims who were blindly following Aristotle. Whatever Aristotle says is true. He was referring to them as philosophers. The term has changed. Today, philosopher doesn't mean the same thing it meant in the time of Ghazali. This is well highlighted in the works of Frank Griffel that we talked about earlier. 
philosophy just means the study of logic. Okay, it literally means the um, the love of wisdom, to love wisdom. Now, are, are Muslims not supposed to love wisdom? Okay, that's the literal meaning. But today, if you go to university and say, I study philosophy, well, that means you're going to study logic. It doesn't mean you're a lover of wisdom. Hmm. Okay, that's what it literally means, yes. But today it means, oh, you're going to study epistemology, you're going to study analytical logic, you're going to study inductive logic, you're going to study abductive logic. You're going to study all, how do we know things? Is that haram to study logic? Whoever says it's haram to study logic has to give me a reason. And when he gives me a reason, he's using logic. Therefore, he's defeated <laughs> his own position. <laughs> Yeah. It's oh, a self-defeating position to say It's haram to study logic mm -hmm. As a matter of fact If you read the Quran carefully The kuffar, the disbelievers are, are criticized for not using logic If they had used logic They would have been believers This is the theme in the Quran I dare anybody to challenge this Anybody I dare anybody to challenge me on this point there are three over 300 verses that refer to Muslims to have to use logic. Reason is paramount. Now, I'll tell you something about reason. Reason is not perfect. A master logician, when he reaches the highest levels of reason, realizes that to, he has to, at one point, realize that he can never know Allah via logic alone. He can know to a certain extent. Logic can point to Allah. That's it. A logic can point to God. But the direct experience of God is a gift. It's a gift from God. Each one of us has a gift from God. Why? We each have that fitra. We each reflect the light of God. Obviously, we're not gods. You know, people who say that, in my opinion, is the epitome of arrogance. The Islamic experience is to realize you have the fitra. Once you realize you have the fitra, you have a direct experience with fitra, ask yourself, did you know it logically? No, I only knew it via direct experience. I always like to liken it to a robot. You know, I always tell people, okay, imagine, Rami, imagine we're going to make a robot, Rami 2.0. <laughs> Instead of skin, we're going to use sheet metal. Instead of bones, we're going to use stainless steel. Instead of blood, we're going to put oil. Instead of a heart, we're going to put a pump. Instead of eyes, we're going to put a camera. Instead of a brain, we're going to put a computer. And Rami 2.0, he talks like you. He walks like you. He thinks like you. He, he, he copies you every, every little movement. He laughs at things that make you laugh. He cries at things that make you cry. He reacts identically to you. The only difference we see is when we touch him, he's, he's, he's steel. One day I come and I destroy Rami 2.0. I turn him into a little box. Did I murder him or did I damage property? Was he alive? Was he having the same experience, conscious experience as you? Or was he only giving off the, ex experience, the, the, the appearance of experience? Rami Tupanoi was only giving you, you he was only giving the, ex the appearance of consciousness. Like for instance, I always liken it to a ventrilo ventriloquist doll. You know, the doll sitting on a guy's lap. And the little kids watching him, they think that doll is alive. But really what they're doing is they're projecting their mind. And this is a very profound topic. But they're projecting their mind onto the doll. They don't realize that the doll has no mind. It's only projection of their mind. That doll 
is just a mechanical object. We can project our minds onto things and we hence observe ourselves. We think we're observing a third party, but really we're observing our own mind. This is where a layman can't differentiate. Now, if Avicenna or Ibn Sina or, or Ibn Arabi said something that is really haram, let's say, you have to be very careful that you understand, number one, their position. This is a Ghazalian, by the way. And nobody's going to make takfir of Ghazali. If you make takfir of Ghazali, man, you should really learn your history. <laughs> because he's the one agreed upon guy that nobody argued about in his time. No, You know, there's a hadith that says every hundred years, there's going to be a reformer in Islam. Nobody disagreed that it was Ghazali. Nobody. Find me one person in his time that thought it wasn't Ghazali the leader of the Muslim world. Find me one guy. You won't be able to find one. We had a unanimous consensus over Ghazali. Today, people all question Ghazali because honestly, they just don't really understand what he's saying. Number one, you have to understand truly what they're saying. If you don't say, Allahu Alam, man, I, I'm, not, I'm not touching that. You know, I, I, I'm not going to say any opinion. I don't understand what he's trying to say. Now, they did say things. They did, some philosophers did say things that I totally don't agree or I don't understand what they meant. And Ghazali had three, listen, he had three things that he criticized um, Ibn Sina for. Three things he was certain were taking, them, taking him out of the fold of Islam. Three things. He later dropped one of those three things. So even the most, you can never be so sure you know what that person means. Because later on, Ghazali and his followers were challenged on this one point. And it had to do, did the dunya always exist or did it come into existence? If you read the Quran very carefully, the Quran never says that the dunya, the, the entirety of the dunya came into existence because it, it, there's, there's and again, I, I have no opinion on this because I'm not an expert on this topic, but the, the throne of Allah, is that dunya? There, there are topics, there are nuances to the topic that I'm not an expert in, but they went back and forth. And this topic later on, Ghazalian followers, Followers, they dropped it, and Ghazali didn't comment on it anymore. Mm. So there seemed to be... So what I'm trying to say is sometimes we're not sure what that person meant. And second of all, sometimes we don't understand what that person meant. And third of all, um, because he said one thing that's wrong doesn't mean he said something else that's wrong. Mm. He could be correct. And what he said was wrong, who knows where his heart was. That's between him and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So I'm not going to judge him. But what I will do is I'll take every idea and scrutinize it. And I'll do that with every human being because no human being other than the prophets are outside of being critiqued because every human being could have a faulty idea. Do you think Ghazali never made a mistake? As much as I praise them, do you think he never was wrong about anything? Of course he was wrong about certain things. Do you think Aristotle was never wrong? He was, a, in his time, he was, a, he was probably the greatest thinker. Do you think Sir Isaac Newton was never wrong? He's arguably the greatest scientific thinker in history. Do you think Einstein was never wrong? Of course, every human being was wrong about something. So, is it just their limitations? Is, like, let um, my opinion is, let God judge them. Let God judge them. God will know if they were had a had the intention to misguide people, or were they, this is just the faculties that Allah gave them, and this is how the conclusion that they had. At the end, it's going to come down to what their intention was. And Allah is going to judge them. My position is to take every idea and scrutinize it. I don't care who said this idea. I want to see if it's true. Does it hold on its own merits? And this is what Ghazali tells us to do. 
So I don't see how any Muslim could argue against that. All right. Alhamdulillah. If y'all have anything to say, Rami, you can end this one off. SubhanAllah, <laughs> um, man. My mind is blown. <laughs> Too much philosophy, mashallah. <laughs> it's yeah. a good thing, though. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. I have nothing else to add, man. If you want to go ahead. <laughs> no, we're waiting for MMA, bro. <laughs> yeah, me too, Loki. Right, I think there's another thing too. It's it's the perseverance aspect too. Like we're more willing to stick through with things that we set out with an intention. It's impossible to have empathy for others if you're not patient. So my love, bless you for that. First of all, I agree with the fact that the whole thing you said about friends. Where it's like, if, if they're affecting you more than you're affecting them, then you should probably get some new friends. You want to be investing stocks, shares, bonds. You want to be investing in crypto because there's this thing called inflation, which means every year that passes by, the value of a dollar goes lower and lower and lower. And the reason being is because they're printing more money, right? That's why money is haram. At least the paper money is haram. Provided that you're actually there and you're being a good father and the mother's being a good mother, best conditions. And behind the mic, Hamza, Andreas, Zortzis, we will go in with our final three with brother Angel, inshallah. It's not just a responsibility on you, it's responsibility on all the children, especially your father. In our private area is very elastic. And yeah, if you go too fast, the skin will literally crease up into like the edge of like the little clipper things and you will literally clip your skin. You don't want to be on YouTube or the internet or anything that, that amount of time. But it's, it's the, the fact is that's what we're doing. Mm-hmm.